you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the California Underground. I'm your host, Phil. Uh, day 2463 of lockdown here in California. I don't know. I'm exaggerating at this point. I don't really know how many days it's been. It's been a while. It's been three months. What seemed like it was going to be maybe, uh, you know, two weeks. What they said, two weeks. Two weeks to flatten the curve. That's what they kept yelling at us. We need two weeks to flatten the curve. And then you can go back to normal. And now here we are about two, three months later. And they're still just now rolling out your ability to go dine into a restaurant. And that's only some counties are allowing you to do such a thing. Um, it's not all over the place. So places like L.A. obviously are uh, deciding that it's not safe for you to go outside um, to make your own decisions. Uh, probably until August, they've decided that you're going to be in timeout until August. And at which point, um, they may think about letting you out and slowly bringing things back to normal down here in San Diego. We've been doing a little bit better. Uh, this past week we were able to vote, uh, county supervisors voted to, uh, accelerate us into phase two. And now we're waiting on Gavin Newsom to see if they'll approve our pilot program which includes some phases of phase two as well as phase three. Uh, and that would include stuff like salons, uh, barbers, haircuts, uh, gyms, fitness centers, uh, a lot of other places like that. Bars and clubs will still not be open, but you know, who knows at this point. And now we have news that uh, president Trump, as of today, as of today, this recording, he's basically made it a point that it is going to be, uh, a priority of his to continue and keep or make sure that the churches do get reopened right now. No longer waiting, no more phases, nothing like that. Um, and, and he's going to make sure that uh, at least through his capacity, I'm not sure what legal capacity he has to do such a thing unless he wants to get the department of justice involved. And then they start filing suits and stuff like that. Uh but we'll see. Uh, President Trump obviously making a point to let people know that religious freedom under your First Amendment rights are uh, being infringed upon in a lot of these states. So, for example, here in California, uh, churches are not supposed to be open until phase three, which at this point, you've now reopened restaurants. You've reopened some other places. You've reopened retail. Um, obviously all the essentials that they said are still open. Um, cannabis dispensaries are still open. Liquor stores are still open. Grocery stores are still open. Pharmacies are still open. Office supply stores are still open. Uh, obviously gas stations are still open. Um, but houses of worship or places of worship are no longer allowed to be open, even in some sort of outdoor capacity where even if you're sitting in your car, that's not okay. Um, so we'll see, but as always, I want to give you an update on what's been going on legally, uh, what I've been working on. Uh, a lot has happened in a week. But before that, always, let's get started with our out-of-the-gate monologue. I've said this before, and it's worth repeating. The reality of being locked down in perpetuity will sooner or later clash with the fantasy of staying in complete control of its citizens. It's not feasible or responsible to keep things shut down until there's a cure. A vaccine is far off. Even at the warp speed people are working to get a vaccine for COVID-19, we are still looking at it possibly being ready by the end of 2020. 
which by my count is still seven months away. And now an article in the Washington Examiner reported that suicides in California are off the charts. From the article says, the numbers are unprecedented. Dr. Michael Bois Blank, I hope I said your name right, of John Moy Medical Center in Walnut Creek, California, told ABC7 News about the increase of deaths by suicide, adding that he's seen a year's worth of suicides in the last four weeks alone. Bois Blank said he believes it's time for California officials to end the stay at home and let people back out into their communities. Personally, I think it's time, he said. I think originally this was put in place to flatten and to make sure hospitals have the resources to take care of COVID patients. We have the current resources to do that, and our other community health is suffering. Now, the lockdown SS, or secret police, will continue to decry that reopening the country and the economy will lead to massive death tolls. That thousands of people will die, and why are we being so callous with human life? All the while, they ignore the collateral damage that is due to economic issues. Now, if you remember, I asked a while back on this episode, based on statistics and numbers that I pulled from San Diego and through federal agencies, and I asked the question, are you okay with losing three people due to economic-related deaths, such as suicide or overdoses, to every one coronavirus death? Now, these are not hypothetical numbers. These are actual numbers based on statistics. Yet somehow a COVID death is more dire than someone committing suicide because they've lost everything or overdosing on drugs because their options look so bleak. We are now starting to see all of this come to fruition. And I asked about this about a month ago, and we're now starting to see the ramifications of it. We also have learned this past week that thousands of New York deaths are due to irresponsible policies of forcing COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. 70% of deaths in Pennsylvania resulted in COVID-positive patients being forced into nursing homes. Testing here in San Diego has shown that one out of 4,000 individuals is asymptomatic, and that's well below the original estimate of the CDC saying 35% are walking around asymptomatic and spreading it like wildfire. The truth is, this is happening every single day. More and more information comes out showing that the truth of what is happening. More people are starting to wake up to the reality that if given a choice between losing their livelihood and fighting off a virus with a 99% survival rate, they're going to take their chances. However, those in power refuse to budge or admit their mistakes. They continue to double down on their original talking points. This virus is deadly. Millions will die. We don't know anything about it. And all of this is just not true. We learn more about it every single day. Doctors, who I, I guess can't be trusted now as opposed to the scientists, which is the new left's talking point, continue to voice their opinions that we need to reopen. There are bigger issues at stake here. 40 million people are out of work. Businesses are closing at a rapid rate. This is unsustainable. And the people see this too. Business owners are opening in defiance of governor's orders. It's happening from sea to shining sea. The reason? Because people are learning the truth and finding out for themselves the information pertaining to the severity of this virus. Now, this reminds me of an old allegory I learned back in college, and it's been repeated over and over again. It's the story of Plato and the cave. Now, if you're not familiar with the story... It's the story where Plato asks Socrates and he shows him people, prisoners chained to a wall in a cave. 
Now, these prisoners are only shown shadows that are illuminated by a fire behind them. So at a certain point, these prisoners begin to name the shadows, begin to create ideas of what these horrible monsters are. And this becomes their reality. Now, it's almost similar to what's going on right now. Millions of people are locked in their homes, watching the news that continues to fearmonger and politicize this pandemic. The more they stay home, they begin to believe this is the reality. These are the shadows on the wall that they see, and now they've been locked inside so long, they don't know what reality is and where the fiction begins. However, it's those individuals who have been escaping the cave and seeing the outside world who are saying, enough is enough. The left has had their fun playing authoritarians for a couple months, but the truth is starting to spread through the people faster than they hoped. No amount of censorship on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, any of that is stopping the flow of information and the truth coming out about what's going on. It's the real world facts do not match with the narrative that they have been pushing. More people are symbolically leaving their caves and seeing the light. Now, the adults have figured out that we have stayed put long enough. So for Democratic governors like Gavin Newsom, playtime is over. It's time to get back to work. So as I see, every week we kind of end up in a new milestone. I feel like every week brings new information and brings light to new uh, revelations of what's going on out there when it comes to this pandemic. Uh, More and more people are starting to figure this out. Even the fact that we've seen Gavin Newsom back off of this idea that um, it was for a while you could not have any more than one death for over two weeks. And that is just unsustainable to say that you can only have let you can have zero deaths over the course of two weeks in your county to even think about moving to the next phase. Even if your numbers are dramatically reducing or they're headed in the right direction, he came up with these unsustainable uh, goalposts. Now, he backed off of those goalposts, thank God, because there would have been no way in hell that any of these counties would have been able to live up to it. Maybe some of the counties, which never really had any cases to begin with and never really had any deaths, but some places like San Diego County or LA, I mean, they'll be locked down in perpetuity forever if they continue to believe that you can't have any deaths for two weeks before you move to the next phase. Now, what happens... I guess originally, it doesn't really matter anymore. The the point is moot. But at this point, hypothetically, what happens if you're a county like L.A.? And L.A. went 14 days without a death, which is hard to do in L.A. Do they get to move to the next phase? Now, what happens when they're in phase two or phase three and then there's a death within those 14 days? Do they have to go backwards? Where do, Where does this end? So I'm glad, I'm proud of San Diego been able to push this forward and show that they've been doing uh, doing really well. Our numbers have been going down a lot. Uh, we've done pretty well for as populated, probably out of the three cities, I would say the big three coastal cities, San Diego, LA, and San Francisco, we've been doing really well down here. I don't know why. I'm not sure why we were, I mean, there's, as I've said before, you can make guesses and there could be a number of things that are happening. Um, There's probably a number of confounders out there that we won't figure out when it comes to coronavirus for years to come. And if you're not familiar with the term a confounder is, a confounder is an unaccounted for variable that leads to a result. So there's things that people think and they think, oh, well, this they'll say this thing led to this thing. This is the result of this thing. 
a lot of times we don't look into what the confounders are. People like to just say, okay, this equals this. This is why it's happening. That's what a confounder is. So we may not find out. Is it because of the weather? Is it because of the sun? Is it because we're a little bit more spread out? Is it because, uh, you know, we don't have any, really any public transportation down here? We're not really going to find that out for a while, but who knows? So we've seen them back off a little bit in the time. San Diego, we, we move forward. We are lucky enough to move forward. Um, in my opinion, I don't think it's enough. As a former restaurant owner, I will say this. And someone who knows a lot of restaurant people, still close with a lot of restaurant people. You cannot tell a restaurant that they can only operate at 25% capacity. A lot of these restaurants survive on the fact that they need to flip tables two or three times in one night. As John Taffer said, the majority of their money, John Taffer, the famous bar rescue guy who yells at everybody, he said on Fox Business that these bars make the majority of their money for the week within about 16 hours a week. And that's Friday, Saturday night, and a little bit on Sunday. And if they can't operate at 100% capacity, there is no way they're going to be able to pay their bills or make ends meet. At this point, it's a nice concession. Some people are excited about the dining in. Me, on the other hand, I don't think it goes far enough. It's nice. It's definitely a boost if you're a restaurant because before you were only doing takeout and you were just hanging on by your fingernails. And now you have this dine-in option where more people can come in and continue to get takeout. But that's just an example that it's not, it's not fast enough. It's a nice little concession. Everyone wants to pat themselves on the back and say, yay, go us. Look what we did. We're moving in the right direction. Exciting. Sure. But the fact that we're cheering that the government is giving a little bit of our rights back is really the scary thing about all of this when you think about it. The, the scary thing is that we're cheering that they are now giving us our freedoms back. And I've said this before. These freedoms are not freedoms the government gives you and can take away at any point. It was never the government's right to give you these rights. They were not rights to be given or taken away. It was not like you're a child and they took away your toy and now you've been good for a little bit and you've been in timeout for a while. And now they can give you your toy back. We've always had these rights. And the idea is government has to protect these rights. That's what government was set up to do. And that's what the founding fathers set up this constitutional republic for. They set this stuff up and they set up the Bill of Rights specifically because they want to outline the Bill of Rights. They want to outline what were the inalienable fundamental rights that we as humans in a modern world are afforded. Now, these were not rights that the government said, we're going to write these down on the Bill of Rights and give them to you out of nowhere. The Bill of Rights was a recognition of the fact that these rights existed naturally in nature. They were derived by our creator, whoever your creator is. Whether your creator is God, Yahweh, you know, whoever, Allah, these rights were given to you by our creator. And the role of our government is to protect those rights. And I think that's maybe where a fundamental fundamental line in the sand is being drawn. You have people on the left who already believe that your rights can be taken away by the government. 
that's where they start. They start from the idea that your rights can be given away. The Constitution's a living document. We can chop it up and do whatever the hell we want with it because it's a living document. And, you know, what the hell did these old guys, you know, 300 years ago know about any of our rights today? Then you have people on the right who say, these are our inalienable rights. These are fundamental rights. You can't take them away from us. And much has been written about this and much has been discussed about this about our inalienable rights and our fundamental rights. And what is, how far can these governments go? It's been my belief and it's my argument. And if I were to move forward with any sort of legal action, it would be my argument that a lot of these agencies, these executive agencies of unelected officials have gone a little too far in their authority because they are no longer considering the fact that you can't trample on someone's fundamental rights because of a pandemic. As William Barr says, Attorney General says, there is no pandemic exception to the Bill of Rights. Yeah, there are cases. There are absolutely cases where the government needs to act in an emergency way, where we don't have time to let the legislature go on and on and debate and the executive needs to take swift action. However, that's incredibly limited. That doesn't mean that we get to throw the Constitution out the window and we get to say, to hell with it, we're going to do whatever the hell we want because this is a public health pandemic. That's not how any of this works. And this week I saw an article regarding uh, Alan Dershowitz, who has sort of become a folk hero on the right because he was somebody who came out and said, I voted for Hillary Clinton. Uh, I'm a liberal. I work at Harvard, all of these issues. Now he said, let's see, I'm going to pull this up. Uh, again, I always post the links to the full article so you can read them for yourselves. Recently, I've been including a little bit more articles because I haven't been able to get to all of them. I've been doing a little bit deep dive into a lot of different subjects. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to play the clip. It's only about 40 seconds long. But Dershowitz, he said a whole bunch of other things as well. Um, and then we're going to discuss. We're going to break this down in light of not only U.S. constitutional law as well as California law as well. And to discuss why Mr. Dershowitz, for as smart as he is, uh, and I respect him, very smart man. He's, uh, you know, done a lot in his life. Obviously, he's done a lot more than I have as an attorney. Uh, but doesn't mean he's infallible and he didn't get this absolutely wrong. So here's the clip. Legitimate. Uh, let me put it very clearly. You have no constitutional right to endanger the public and spread a disease, even if you disagree. You have no right not to be vaccinated. You have no right not to wear a mask. You have no right to open up your business. Wait, if can I stop you? Did, yeah. No if right not to be vaccinated, meaning if they decide you have to be vaccinated, we have to be vaccinated? Absolutely. And if you refuse to be vaccinated, the state has the power to literally take you to a doctor's office and plunge a needle into your arm. If the Now, here's why uh, Mr. Dershowitz, as smart as he is, is just wrong. What I think he's trying to argue here is he's trying to talk about what is called the police power and that governments have been effectively given and lost and states and lost state constitutions have been effectively given themselves the state police power, which is 
The police power is used to uh, enforce people to do things for the general welfare of the people. Um, and I believe that's what he's trying to get at. He doesn't cite anything. Um, I mean, is it an idea out of the Ninth Amendment? The Ninth Amendment, which says that the enumeration of the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. And the idea of that is that there are rights that are out there in the world that have not been discovered or created yet. And the fact that the Constitution exists does not deny or disparage people, does not limit what those rights are. Uh, And the Ninth Amendment, basically the way I understand it, is just because it's not in the Constitution uh, does not mean, and this goes back to the idea that rights are not given by the government. Rights are inherent, and the government is supposed to protect those rights. That the Ninth Amendment is really to say, if it's not in the Constitution, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, and it's not a right that shall be protected by the United States of America. But I think he goes a little deeper. I think what he's talking about here is the police power. And the police power has been broadly discussed and broadly debated and it, the severity of it obviously has limitations. I want to read from you a, a little excerpt from a California Supreme Court case. It is Miller v. Board of Public Works of City of Los Angeles, an older case, 1925, but it's still relevant law. Um, it goes on to say the police power of a state is an indispensable prerogative of sovereignty and one that is not to be lightly limited. Indeed, even though at times its operation may seem harsh, the imperative necessity for its existence precludes any limitation upon its exercise, save that it not unreasonably arbitrarily be invoked and applied. It is not, however, illimitable and the marking and measuring of its the extent of its exercise and application is determined by a consideration of the question of whether or not any invocation of that power in any given case and is applied to existing conditions is reasonably necessary to promote the public health, safety, and morals. In short, the police power as such is not confined within the narrow circumscription of precedence. Resting upon past conditions, which do not cover and control present-day conditions obviously calling for revised regulations to promote the health, safety, morals, and general welfare of the public, that is to say, as a commonwealth develops politically, economically, and socially, the police power likewise develops within reason to meet the changed and changing conditions. What was at one time regarded as an improper exercise of the police power may now, because of a change living conditions, be recognized as a legitimate exercise of that power. This is so because what was reasonable exercise of this power in the days of our fathers may today seem so utterly unreasonable as to make it difficult for us to comprehend the existence of conditions that would justify same. What would by our fathers have been rejected as unthinkable is today accepted as a most proper and reasonable exercise thereof. Whew. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in that, obviously, because there's a lot of legalese going on and what they're talking about. In the sense that it says both at the same time, one, that the police power in California is very broad and it's very powerful, and it can be used in very powerful situations, as is the case here. So originally when this whole pandemic came about and the original idea was we're going to lose 2 million people, 2.2 million people, hundreds of thousands of people will be in hospitals, hospitals would be overrun, there was no way to know exactly what the hell was going on, that there was some ability for the police power to jump in and um, control what people do and to 
push for the general welfare, safety, and health of the people. But as I said in the opening monologue, that this is not exactly what's going on anymore. Sure, if we were still living in fear that the hospitals were overrun and that there was nobody, no place to send anybody who contracted COVID-19 or that millions of people were already dead um, and that there was no end in sight and that we didn't know what the heck was going on, that would be different. And the reason that this is important to really point out is that the police power is broad, but also has to live within the confines of the Constitution. So while Mr. Dershowitz likes to say that they can absolutely drag you from your home, throw you into a doctor's office, plunge a needle into your arm, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's not absolutely true. One, because it's a violation of your personal space, of your personal freedoms, of your personal body. We've had numerous case law to say that your body, what you do with your body, is your own right, and that's protected by the Constitution. Those rights have been sort of peeled out of the Constitution. We've seen those in a lot of other rights that your body, your right to privacy are inherent rights. They're uh, inalienable rights. Obviously, freedom of movement. You have this idea of being uh, not forcibly, forcibly vaccinated. You don't have to be forcibly done. You don't have to be forced into doing what you don't want to do. There's a lot of case law against what Mr. Dershowitz is saying. So I'm not really sure where he's getting this idea that absolutely they can drag you out of your house. The only thing I can think of is that he's talking about the police power. And right here in this case, in the Supreme Court of California case, which is still good law, says that you can't just do whatever you need to do, that there is a limit on what you can do. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how this relates to the businesses as well, because it's sort of a bigger, broader picture of what the police power is. And I hope I'm not boring you with all the police power stuff, but it's important that people understand this because for all the people who think that the government can come in and do whatever the hell they want to you, that's not the case. There is case law. There is case law and there has been discussions. There are constitutions, laws in place so that you don't have to worry about this going through. Now, obviously, they could try to go through with it because their belief is that if you're ignorant enough and people who don't read up on this law, they will never know. But that's the point of this program, right? That's why you listen to this podcast is so you can learn stuff like this. Anyway, so I don't see where he gets this idea that you can just take someone and plunge a needle into their arm. There's extraordinary powers you can do under police powers. There's extraordinary powers you can do under police powers. But it has to be reasonably necessary to promote the public health, safety, and morals. And that's always the same language that comes up again and again and again. It has to be reasonably necessary to promote public health. And as we've seen in these past couple of weeks, we've seen the numbers. We've seen that the numbers show that... This virus, there is a large amount of people who survived this virus, that they recover from this virus, that there does not need to be a vaccine. There was no vaccine for SARS. There was no vaccine for swine flu. There was no vaccine for Ebola. There was no vaccine for bird flu. Yet we still lived and moved on with our lives. There was no shutdown of the economy because of any of those previous pandemics. And now people are arguing that the government and the state has the absolute power to do whatever they want with your body. I don't see where they get that authority. I don't understand where they think that authority stems from. Even here in California, I don't think there's the case law on 
their side to do such a thing. Dragging people from their homes to mandatorily vaccinate them with a vaccine for something that has a 99% survival rate, does that is that reasonably necessary to promote the public health? How many thousands of people, or not millions of people, don't get flu shots every single year? If the flu shot was so mandatory and absolutely reasonably necessary to promote public health, and it comes around every single year, and it does kill hundreds, tens of thousands of people, why are we not mandatory mandating that people go get the flu shot? Why are we not using the police power to plunge needles into people's arms? That's a question I would ask Mr. Dershowitz. How can you argue in this case that it absolutely is necessary that we need to plunge needles into people's arms? And I like to use his language because it's so horrific and graphic and terrifying that you're going to have government officials and people in white lab coats coming around, grabbing you and forcing and plunging needles into your arms. That should terrify the crap out of you. But I want to use his language because it's important. How can we do not vaccinate people for the seasonal flu that comes around every single year? What's his answer? If it's for the, if it's reasonably necessary to promote public health, tens of thousands of people die from the seasonal flu every year. Why don't we just go ahead and mandate the vaccine for flu? How many more people would we save? Or for that matter, why don't we mandate that? I don't know. People not be overweight. Why don't we cite people in a criminal court if they're overweight after they check in with their doctor and their BMI is too high? What's your answer? Is your answer only because of this one specific pandemic that we have to all of a sudden throw the Constitution down the toilet? Or, or are you just picking and choosing? I think he's picking and choosing what he wants to say. He's trying to be bombastic about this. If his argument is that the government can do this to promote the public health because of the police powers that's somehow been granted, then why aren't we doing this with every single thing that every ill that plagues our society? When it comes to obesity, when it comes to... Um, trying to think of some other alcoholism uh the seasonal flu um i mean there's a number of things you can talk about they all promote the public health but i think what he's he's missing is that it's not reasonably necessary and again the out of the gate monologue talked about this that the numbers continue to come out people are starting to say wait a second the survival rate of this is oh 99 let's just say being generous it's 98 percent And that's being incredibly generous that it's 98%. It's more like 99%, 99 99.99 something or other when you do the math. That's how many people survive this. But for some reason, it's reasonably necessary that we got to mandatorily fax everybody in the entire country. That doesn't seem reasonably necessary. That doesn't seem reasonably necessary to suspend the Constitution and violate people's civil rights. Or their inalienable rights and fundamental rights under the Constitution. I don't understand where he gets this idea that this is this is what we need to do. So I disagree with Mr. Dershowitz, and this is just California law. 
I'm sure there's laws all over the country. I'm sure there's case law all over the country saying that there is a amount that the police power can be exercised. But this term, and I want you to keep in mind, this term, what is reasonable? What would justify the need to do such a thing? So far, the data in the real world has not shown that any proper reasonable exercise of mandatorily vaccinating people is what we need to do. So I disagree with him. And it's good to talk about this because people get... Obviously, people get scared. They get worried about whether the government can come into your home and force you to leave your home, be vaccinated, do this, do that. But again, the the Constitution, case law, when it comes to the Constitution, likes to balance two things. Obviously, it comes to the idea of, well, sometimes there's going to be rights that get a little infringed upon. The question is, how far can you go in those infringements? before it becomes really unconstitutional. In the police power in this instance, what Mr. Dershowitz is proposing, I would say is absolutely unconstitutional. And his, and his argument that there is no constitutional right to prevent you from being having a needle plunged into your arm, I would disagree and say the Ninth Amendment. Just because the right to protect yourself from mandatory vaccinations doesn't exist in the Constitution does not mean that that is not a right that the Constitution should thereby protect. If the Ninth Amendment is created, if the Ninth Amendment was created to say there are still rights out there that we're not sure, and this is just a catch-all to say, we didn't name everything in these Ten Amendments, but... Just in case, that does not mean that you get to trample on those other rights just because they're not named in here. But that goes back to the different idea of how you view government. Is government this idea that government is the benevolent mother, that they give you rights, that they've created these rights and they, they give them to you? Or... Are you of the belief that we were already born with these rights and that America so far is the only country that really acknowledges that these rights exist and has created a government that is supposedly supposed to protect those rights at all costs? I would like to think I'm the latter, that these rights are what we have already and there are rights out there we still have not discovered or that the Constitution doesn't name. And just because the Constitution does not name them does not mean that you get to say, well, the Constitution doesn't give you the right to do so or to to deny it, so therefore we can do it. That's not how this works. If anybody, Mr. Dershowitz should understand that, that that's not how the Constitution works. You don't look at the Constitution and say, well, the Constitution doesn't give you that right, so therefore you you cannot deny me wanting to plunge a needle into your arm. Okay. There's a lot of things that the Constitution does not say, but somehow they became constitutional rights. You know, I'm not ragging on gay marriage. I don't have an issue with gay marriage. I go back to Scalia's dissent where he said if if they if gay couples want to be as miserable as the rest of us married couples, I have no issue with that. 
And people think Scalia was this monster who was a homophobic or, or homophobic all about this when he dissented. But when you read his dissent, it's actually pretty interesting. His dissent said, again, he has no issue with it. Even as a Catholic man, a Catholic Italian man, he said, look, I, you know, whatever. He said, live and let live. You want to be as miserable as the rest of us married people? Go right ahead. But his issue was with that you cannot just create new rights out of the Constitution. So just because there is no right preventing people from plunging needles into your arm does not mean you get to do it because the Constitution doesn't say so. And I want to talk a little bit about how this police power is affecting businesses as well. And this is all California stuff as well. I'm trying to keep this as California specific as possible. I mean, again, the, the name of the podcast is California Underground. So it's all about California. And I want to talk about specifically the law here in California. We could talk about U.S. constitutional law all day, whether it really applies here in California. There's a lot of things that apply to the Constitution. Um, but specifically, I always think it's better to go the California route route to look at case law, look at the Constitution here and determine whether or not um, whether what are the rights that we've determined, because if the law is already on our side, that's already good for here in California. You know, citing a law from somewhere, you know, Wisconsin, for example, does not help us. But citing California law absolutely does. Uh, so in, in terms of the police power, when it comes to um, businesses, and I get this question a lot, especially now with coronavirus in these business and the business shutdown. I think it's incredibly relevant right now to talk about this. I've discussed this a little bit with the idea of the takings clause in the Fifth Amendment. But here in California, it states that the right to engage in a business or occupation cannot be taken away except by due process. And this is from a case, Stewart v. San Mateo County. Um, basically, what they're saying, and this is, again, falling under the police power. Limitations on the right to work may be sustained only after careful scrutiny. This is Sailor in Inc. v. Kirby. And that any ordinance or statute that prevents a person from engaging in a lawful business cannot be upheld unless protection of life, health, or property makes it reasonably necessary. And that little bit is from Meridian Limited v. Sippy. Right in there, did you not hear that you cannot be deprived of your right to engage in lawful business. That was summed up in about eh, two sentences. One really long sentence and, and, you know, another little shorter one. So two sentences. And this is California law stating that you cannot just tell people they cannot engage in a lawful business that they cannot engage in a lawful occupation without some sort of due process of law. Nor that um, you can't create some sort of ordinance or statute that would thereby limit that. Of course, again, it comes down to this reasonably necessary. Is it the reasonably necessary for protection of life, health, and or property? 
And again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but again, this all comes back to this idea is, is it reasonably necessary now that we know that this virus and this pandemic has a 99% survival rate? Do we now know that if one out of 4,000 people tested here in San Diego County are uh, asymptomatic and that it's not as crazy as people seem to believe, is it reasonably necessary to keep businesses closed and to prevent them from being engaged in lawful business? That's the question I want to put out there. And I'm sure plenty of you would answer, no, there's absolutely no reason. There's no reason to be reasonably necessary to close this for public health. And the more facts come out about all what's going on, you're going to start to see this rational basis or this reasonably necessary standard be put to the test. Last little bit about this regarding business. Even in the absence of First Amendment considerations, the ordinance ordinance regulating the right to engage in a lawful occupation or business must bear a rational relationship to a valid governmental purpose. And that's Perrine v. Municipal Court. So again, we have this rational basis of what's reasonably necessary. And people can, and the government who is in charge right now, people who are in charge right now can no longer fight or push back the truth of what is happening right now. And the truth of it is, is that the facts are continually showing that what we're doing to businesses and private property is not reasonably necessary, nor based on a rational basis to continue to keep this up. They'll keep saying, well, it's to promote the public health and this, that, and the other thing. But if you can show by proof that this is no more deadly than the seasonal flu and we have not shut down the country for the seasonal flu, we don't shut down the country every year for the seasonal flu when the survival rate's about the same. If we know who we need to protect and who's most at risk, why are we shutting down the entire county? Why are we shutting down the entire state? If there's healthy people who will not be affected by this, who will not die from this, why are they being shut down and told to stay inside? Why are business owners being ripped and deprived of their lifelong dreams to own a business because of a virus that effectively is the same as the seasonal flu? And you're going to start seeing governments un- be more and more unable to grapple with these facts. So maybe a week or two ago, a lot of these places like New Jersey and California, specifically here in California, it looked like we weren't going to reopen for months. It looked like we weren't going to open for a long time. But now you start to see as more facts come out, as more good news comes out about maybe treatments or vaccines, even though not everyone's going to get a vaccine anyway, as we just discussed. Officials are starting to look at it and say, well, we can't keep this charade going forever. So maybe we need to start lightening the load a little bit. Now, again, I'm someone who believes we just need to rip the bandaid off and just let people go back to work. If you're scared, you're scared. You can stay home. You can, if you're immunocompromised, talk with your boss, talk with whoever and say, look, I'm immunocompromised. Um, I'm you know afraid of going back to work for health reasons. There are plenty of worker protections in law, employment law to protect you. If you've been telecommuting so far, you've been doing a good job. I don't see why your boss cannot let you continue to telecommute if you're immunocompromised. But the rest of us, the rest of people who want to get back out, want to go back and live their lives, 
need to get back out and live their lives. California law does not support you to continually be put under lockdown. Now, this last little bit, there's the last one last little thing about the police power here in California. It says the legislator may not, under the guise of police power, impose unnecessary, unreasonable restrictions on the use of private property or the pursuit of useful activities. That's State Board of Dry Cleaners versus Thrift D Lux Cleaners. Now, mind you, this is all talking about the legislature. Legislature hasn't passed anything. This has all been county by county executive orders. And that's one issue that and a whole nother analysis is that a lot of these agencies and a lot of these unelected agency uh, heads are just kind of writing everything up as emergency orders and they just keep extending them. Now, we've seen across the country, this is you can't keep doing it. You can't just keep saying, well, I'm going to write a new emergency order. I'm going to extend it another 30 days. And now it's 30, went to 60, now 60, to 90. You can't continue to do that. At a certain point, the emergency powers were created so that we could quickly address issues that need to be addressed to protect the people. At this point, it's been about three months. So at this point, the legislature could have easily come up with some sort of idea or law. But based on California case law, you can't just impose these unnecessary, unreasonable restrictions on the use of private property. And again, we keep coming back to this reasonableness idea. That's the standard. And I've, pre- I've presented facts and I like to present these facts so that you can see them. I always encourage you to go look at the facts, go look at the numbers yourself. You can easily find these numbers anywhere. The LA Times has a running total, but you can continue to find these facts, even in, even in the face of censorship by YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, whatever the hell, you can still go out and find these facts. Now knowing all of this case law is on your side, and you can just keep asking yourself, ask yourself the question, is this reasonable? Is this necessary? And the more people start to realize this is not necessary, this is not reasonable, you're going to start seeing people push back a little bit. Now, as I've discussed, we've been working here with my firm on, we, we sent that letter, but we're working now on pursuing some sort of litigation. And why am I confident that we can move forward with litigation? Because I found research like this that shows the case law is on our side. And even every week, I think, well, we have a pretty decent shot at maybe getting them to back down. And then more stuff comes out. I say, okay, well, we have a really good shot now. And then more stuff comes out. I say, oh, what are we waiting for? We should be slamming them with a lawsuit right now. I wholeheartedly believe we should just be pushing for full reopen right now. No more phased reopening. No more, you can do this, you can do that. If private businesses want to keep things clean so they can make their customers feel good, that's what they can do. If your individual decision is to stay home, if your individual decision is I don't want to go out to restaurants, that's fine. No one forces people to go out on Friday or Saturday night. No one who sits at home is being dragged out of their house and forced to go to restaurants or bars on a Friday or Saturday night. You can stay home. A lot of people do stay home. 
but that doesn't mean the people who want to go out should not be able to go out or that the businesses that want to be open at full capacity so they can make a living can make a living. The question is, is it reasonable and necessary to promote public health? And I think a lot of people understand this now that it's not entirely reasonable to be doing what we're doing. In fact, it's unreasonable. They are unreasonable restrictions on the use of private property or the pursuit of any of these useful activities. Let me just finish with this thought when we talk about useful activities. You may think, some people may say, you know, it's about you going to the bar. You know, the people who don't like the idea of reopening, who say, it's all because you want to go back to the bar, get a haircut. Maybe. Let me tell you something. That bar employs people. That bar also buys alcohol. Some bars buy food. Extrapolate that one bar out to, I don't know how many thousands in one city. Think of where they get the alcohol from. Who makes the alcohol? What do they need to make alcohol? I mean, we know that if it's whiskey, it's some sort of mash. We know if it's tequila, it's some sort of agave. We know if it's beer, it's some sort of hops. Who makes those? Who makes those things? Well, farmers. Okay. So who buys from those farmers? Well, the alcohol companies who have to make them. With a drop off in that, what happens? Now a farmer can't sell the crops that he's already grown or plans on growing. Think about a movie theater. You think a movie theater is not that big of a deal. Think about the popcorn that gets made. We eat something like 15 billion quarts of popcorn a year when it comes to Americans going to the movie. Where does the popcorn come from? It comes from corn farmers. And those corn farmers who now planted a bunch of corn to grow for the next year because they've been basing it off their average for year after year. Now I don't know what they're going to do with all the corn they've planted for this year because maybe the popcorn companies don't order as much because they know that movie theaters are going to be closed or at half capacity or 25% capacity. Now the farmer's struggling. And think about the amount of orders that now he has to place on trucks to deliver it. Who drives the trucks? Truck drivers. Who owns the trucks? Truck companies. So you're starting to see that it's not all about a haircut. It's not all about just going to the bar and grabbing a beer. It's much bigger than that. We're all connected somehow in some sort of web of the economy. And that maybe it wasn't reasonable to shut down little places, little bars, little restaurants, haircutters. Now that we know all the facts, maybe it's not reasonable to you know make these places only operate at 25% capacity. And put them under even more strain, which then puts the entire supply chain under strain, which then creates problems for next year when we don't have what we need to have because people have cut way back. 
and demand picks up. And then there's a shortage. And then where are we at then? You can't make corn grow faster. You can't make crops grow faster. You can't instantly turn on a switch and make things grow. Think of it in that term. Think of not only just the little business owner. Think of who the business owner supports up the line. Who do they buy the products from? Where do they buy the food from? Who do they support by buying food, alcohol, any of this stuff? It's a lot of people. And when you look at it in this light and you think of all the facts that we now have, and now you have the facts that more people are committing suicide than people are dying here in California of coronavirus. Think of that all together. Think of the amount of harm we've done to the economy because of the initial fear of this pandemic. And I'm not saying it's not warranted because in the beginning, a lot of people were scared. We didn't know what the hell was going on. But now three months later, we have a much better grasp on what's going on. And as facts mount, as the true facts on the ground mount, not the shadows that they're trying to show you and scare you so that you continue to lock yourself in your home, ask yourself, is it reasonable? Because that's as far as the government can go. That's as far as the government's allowed to go. What is reasonably necessary? What is reasonably necessary to protect the the public health when we know that thousands of people are dying, committing suicide, maybe overdosing on drugs because they have nowhere else to go? We've now swung the pendulum in the opposite direction. Public health is going to be strained more because of the economic shutdown worse than the coronavirus and I don't think it's reasonably necessary so with that going to finish up and wrap up for today I wanted to do that deep dive on this because there is a lot going on and as an attorney obviously I gain a lot of questions of what is going on what are our rights what can we do how can we fight back? So my goal is to help you engage in that lawfare, lawfare, which is basically fighting out your battles through the legal courts. And again, my firm is trying to do everything we can to help, at least locally here in San Diego County. And trying to arm you with the knowledge to make the argument of why things need to go back to normal as fast as possible. Because knowledge is power and they don't want you knowing the truth. They don't want you knowing the law. They don't want you knowing the real facts. They don't want you to know what is really going on on the ground. And that's my goal is to provide you with all those things. So you can make an informed decision as an individual. So with that, make sure you follow us on Instagram, California Undergrounds, where I post a lot of things throughout the week. If you have any questions, obviously, uh, you can email CaliforniaUnderground at ProtonMail.com. If you want to send a voice message, call the show. Go to anchor.fm forward slash California Underground. You can listen to the podcast anywhere. Obviously, you're listening to it here. Like, share, and subscribe. Make sure you leave a review. Share with your friends. Spread the word. And I'll see you on the next one.
Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 